Servus und herzlich willkommen zu einem Episode of Bavarian Podcast Works Flagship Show. And I'm very happy to be back here again. This is your Schnitzel. It's very nice to be back hosting a pod after a while. I think, I don't remember the last time I hosted a pod. It was probably a month or two ago. It's been quite busy since I've been in Denmark and, you know, getting used to everything. And uh, today I will be joined by Ryan for the first time uh, from BFW and BPW. And I'm very thrilled because uh, this is the start of a partnership. I hope uh, you will be seeing more of us in the coming podcast, hopefully. So, Ryan, how are you doing today? Uh, how, how are things your end? I've been doing good. It's a pretty lazy Sunday at the start of term. So been thinking about doing this podcast for a bit. That's nice. That's nice. And uh, how was yesterday? I'm sure you were thrilled after Bayern's 8-0 victory against Darmstadt. That was quite a roller coaster ride. It, it was quite the emotional roller coaster. Yeah, I was watching it with a friend who was a Bayern fan as well. And we had the most insane time. We had somebody else who was in the room with us who wasn't watching the match. And they were quite entertained by just our reactions to the match because it was so all over the place. It's so insane, right? There's this pattern. It's like with Tuchel's, uh, Thomas Tuchel's uh, football, you think that a game starts in the worst way possible and you think we are rooted to failure because especially yesterday after that red card, I thought we were doomed. And then somehow things inexplicably turn to work in his favor. Obviously, you can say that a lot of it was to do with Conrad Lima's run that forced the for forced the foul that resulted in a red card to equal things out. But uh, that being said, I mean, we started off in a very unlucky note, and then we got on the lucky end of it, you know, with one man up and three red cards in the first half. I don't think has happened in Bundesliga football since sometime in the 1980s or something, if memory serves me right. So that was absolutely wild. And uh, all things considered, what do you think of uh, Bayern Munich's second half return and how they closed the game? I think it's more to do with uh, Tuchel's change of pace during games because he tends to come into games very slow. We saw it against Galatasaray too, where the first half is just an onslaught from the other team and we seem like we're hanging on by a thread. And then for some reason in the second half, something changes. I think it's more to do with his game plan than it is the team itself struggling. It's almost like we're preserving ourselves for the later half. You think that maybe Tuchel is doing this on purpose to throw teams off at the very beginning of the game, just like, you know, Bayern gives them a false sense of security and then we come all guns blazing in the second half because that would be insane. <laughs> but it seems doubt... like, yeah, <laughs> it does seem like that's what's happening here because we saw it against Galatasaray. We got very unlucky here. Um, I do think Limer maybe could have been blamed for it, but I think. The main fault of the red card is Kimmich's because he makes this mistake so many times where he gets his ball with back to goal and he just coalesces the second he gets pressed, just falls to the ground. Like that cannot keep I happening agree. as a number six. I agree. I think we've seen this too often. Like he takes takes the ball and then he takes a lot of time on it, you know, to try and get the pass. And he's kind of lax at times and he criticized it many times last season and it seems to be returning to haunt him again which is concerning but uh, i guess uh, on that note we could start off with the midfield itself so Bayern's midfield recently not the greatest look has had quite a few problems quite inconsistent obviously Kimmich is now out with a red card so we are doomed because Goretzka is already out with an injury. So who plays in midfield? How do Bayern sort things out? And uh, what happens to Pavlovich, our newest youngster, to join the first team and start with a Bundesliga debut? What did you think of the entire midfield situation and of the youngster? I think Alexander Pavlovich actually put in a very good performance uh, last game. It wasn't... Uh, the kind of game where you would expect something to fall apart. We were already, I think, 5-0 or 6-0 up when he came on. But he put in a very strong 15 minutes from the time that he got. I do think that he won't get the nod against Dortmund. I don't think Tuchel put that kind of pressure on him. I almost see us lining up with a back three 
or a system that we saw later on in this game actually where Tuchu switched to a 5-3-1 obviously 5-3-1 yeah. because I'm just going to stop Kimmich you there before you, before you talk more about a back three because we know that I need no name and a few other people might be waiting you know outside our houses with steaks and you know whatnot forklifts and uh, you know just just fire, fire, just fires and you know guns weapons anything to just ex, to just exterminate us at the mention of a back three so i think we need to be very careful but uh i think we also kind of have to get used to it sadly if the players keep falling like flies because we just seem to not have many options to field on the pitch right now so that being said uh you might be right and uh, now I would let you continue, but maybe we could use a different term for the back three, maybe like uh, the dreaded back line or something. I don't yeah. know. But when you explicitly mention the back three like that, you're just giving these people cannon fodder. Well, maybe that's what I want to do. Okay, bold move, bold move, mm. yes. I will let you continue then, at your own risk. We saw a formation uh, later on during the game where it was almost uh, a back three of Mazrawi, Delik, and Kim because Mazrawi tucked in as a third centre-back at times and Davies had the freedom to go forward. And that was an interesting move for me because it saw Coman come back to the right wing-back role, which he excelled at under Nagelsmann. Obviously, everyone remembers those PSG games where he got on the score sheet to, uh, alongside Alfonso Davies. And that could work. But that's not a long-term solution. That is a stopgap. And it comes back to the debate of, do we get a number six? Who do we get as a number six? Who do we play as a number six in the absence of a proper one? I think Pavlovich has all the qualities that we're looking for. He's got very good ball distribution. He's got the engine. We saw him winning balls all over the place. I think he had more ball recoveries in his first five minutes than Kimmich did in the four minutes that he played. That is saying something because that is a very short span of time. And to get multiple ball recoveries in just those few minutes when Darmstadt were already off the paces, that says something about a player. He's got good reading of the game. And I think he should be tried at least in the Pokal game. Definitely not against Dortmund. That is too much pressure to put on a youngster, I think. But he could definitely do a job until we get to the January window and, I don't know, sign Mats Viefer or someone. Yeah, I understand your point completely about easing him into the fray and not just throwing him into the fire, which is completely right. And I also fear that Bayern Munich might end up signing some very expensive defensive midfielder in the January window because they always do what Thomas Tuchel wants and it it, it usually is to his bidding. So it's kind of uh, difficult to handle sometimes. But uh, hopefully that doesn't happen because I don't think signing someone like Palinia would uh, really help Bayern at this point. And uh, you have something to add to that? Yeah, I've got pretty much the same opinion of that. I think while Jao Palinia is a fantastic player and he's been showing it for Fulham, I would not go up to 60-65 million for him. I would look to get someone, like I mentioned, Mats Viefer from the Eredivisie. He's been fantastic. If you want someone cheaper, you could look at maybe Stanislav Lobotka. Obviously, De Laurentiis, the president of Napoli, is a very tough negotiator, but he would not go up to 65 million for Stanislav Lobotka. Maybe even, you know, bring back Mark Rocca. I don't know. There's so many options out there that are practical and a lot more financially responsible. I'm kind of pissed at the board for messing up because I think this is a sort of juncture where Josip Stanisic would have helped so much because I see him also as a really good defensive midfielder. Because he has good ball distribution, good reading of the game, and he's very good defensively. And I miss him so much. It was very silly to let him go on a one-season loan. And now Leverkusen is just, you know, cruising, especially with a player of his caliber. So not very happy with that decision in retrospect. Yeah, I have to completely agree with that. I do see Josep Stenizic as a potential number six too. He's just very smart on the ball. It's a quality that he shares with very few players in the squad right now where they may not make the most flashy decisions. They're not the ones getting all the goals and the assists, but they just make such smart decisions on the ball. They keep possession. They very rarely lose the ball. I see it only in one player in the squad right now, and that's Nusair Mazraoui. He's really the only player who doesn't lose the ball in bad situations. Yes, I think I have to agree with you on that. And uh, that being said... 
I, I also believe that uh, defense consisting of Davies, uh, Mazraoui, Delict, and uh, um, either one of Kim or Upa would be the best solution going forward. But it would be nice to have someone at the number six who can add an additional layer of defense. And I don't think Yozua Kimish is that. And uh, I guess yeah. now, yeah, yeah. You want to say something? Yeah, I have to agree with you on that. But I will say that I think Upamecano is still the best partner for Kim and Jay right now. As much as I've professed my personal love for the way Matthijs Dilek goes around the game, and he's probably my favorite player in world football right now, I have to say that his role is not as, um, I would say, well-fitting into Tuchel's system than Upamecano's because Upamecano tends to have these visionary balls that no other defender in the world can spot. And while Delict has shown a couple of piercing passes, he doesn't still have quite that catalogue that Upamecano does. Because Upamecano used to rack up assists. I remember there was a time under Nagelsmann where about eight games into the Bundesliga season, he had four assists. He was our top assister. That is the kind of ball playing that we do not see in any other centre-back in the world right now. And Tuchel really wants that. Especially in the absence of a proper number six, we need those piercing passes from the back four. And I think he brings that dimension to the defence. I agree completely, yeah. I think uh, Upamecano, when he is firing on all cylinders and when he actually doesn't make defensive errors, is arguably one of the world's best centre-backs. He's so well-rounded. I just, you know, find it kind of uh, difficult almost to place all my hopes on him in very big games because it feels like the nerves tend to get to him. But I also think that's part of the experience of being a centre-back. He's still maturing. He's very young. So with more experience under his belt, he should just get better with time. And uh, yeah, I think that's uh, enough talk about the midfield, quite negative at the moment, but we could head to something slightly more positive and talk about the attack, for instance, where we have uh, Leroy Zane and Harry Kane, who are on a tear. And I know that you love Zane and have long been calling him the world's best player, so... How do you feel about his performances lately and especially the game against Darmstadt? It was just another showcase of how good he really is. He almost got a hat-trick too. I think it was his first goal in the first half that got disallowed. But he was fantastic. He was... It's unbelievable what a player can do while still changing roles mid-game because he went from the left side to the right side and then he moved into the center a lot. He was just everywhere and then he had to come back and help out midfield too because Kimmich had gotten red carded. It is amazing what he can do on a pitch. I don't think any player comes close to his level both offensively and in ball recovery. It's very rare that you see an attacker who's putting up the kind of numbers that he is and is also defending on the back foot. He is so good at counter-pressing, he's so good at closing down space in the middle, and he's so good at, you know, helping out against counter-attacks. Obviously, this game against Darmstadt, we had Kingsley Coman on that role, and he is fantastic too, but he just doesn't have the kind of tenacity that Leroy Zane does in winning the ball back. And I, I'm loving watching him right now. There have been times where I have not wanted to watch a Bayern game, but I've wanted to watch Leroy Zane play, and I've watched the game because of that, and he's gotten a goal or an assist. That is at the level that he is right now. I think I agree completely. I also think that Leroy Zane is turning out to be one of the most complete attackers. Also, in terms of the pressing, like you mentioned, uh, there was a time in the Darmstadt game when uh, an attacker was very, very deep into a third of the pitch and Zane was uh, close by with Davies and the attacker got past Davies and then Zane was there to ensure that he did not get any further and put in a very nice challenge. And he... His, his defensive ability along with his offensive threat make him such an invaluable weapon to Bayern right now. And I think that his role has been elevated in a way because I don't think Tuchel really has a specific game plan for him in terms of a very specific role. I think he gives Zane the freedom to just do whatever he wants on the pitch. And that's paying dividends because he, like you mentioned, constantly switches roles for the other players. He helps with the defense, and he also interprets his creative role very freely, which is really nice. And uh, do you have something to say on that regard? Yeah, I think uh, I mentioned this in my very, very lengthy, I think it was a 2,000-word article on Leroy Zane's new role in the team. And it is it is a very free role. He's given basically the wildcard option where the other attackers kind of play around him. 
and we see it even in goals that he isn't involved in, where for a time he's just tracking down a defender and he's making the defenders move in ways that open up spaces. Like the goal where Mazraoui crossed it and Harry Kane put a diving header in. You can see Leroy Zane there. He's offside. He he gets in front of the defender, so the defender sees him there, and then he moves away from where Kane is to give Kane that space. That's the kind of movement we see from very few players in world football right now, and it's it is invaluable. It feels like he's almost taking lessons from a certain Raumdeuter that we have in the team, and it's it's lovely to see him help our teammates even when he isn't on the ball. I agree, I agree, and uh, I also think that uh, Jamal Muziala might also be learning from the way Zane plays because. In a way, they both play very similar. Similarly, like they both interpret the playmaking role quite freely. They both attack half spaces. They both use their dribbling ability to also create chances for their teammates. So I think uh, it is having a really good effect on the rest of the team as well, including a player who is benefiting from Sané's exploits a lot, Harry Kane. Initially, I was having discussions with I need to name Tom and a bunch of other people from BPW in previous podcasts about how Sane uh, is doing pretty much everything for the team in attack and how Harry Kane hasn't really gelled yet with the team. He is having trouble finding himself at the right pockets of space at the right times and is looking uncoordinated with the rest of the attack. But right now, it looks like he's trying to start to really gel with the team, getting at the end of all the chances, finishing with ease, and also creating for his teammates. He's chipping in with so many assists, and it looks so good when he combines with the rest of the team. And uh, do you think that uh, we're seeing already Harry Kane's potential at Bayern and how this attack could transform into one of Europe's best? I think it already is one of Europe's best. There is just one link right now that I'm not really seeing, which is Coman. He doesn't really seem to be on the same page as the other three. But yeah, Musiala, Zane and Kane are firing on all cylinders right now. And my one gripe with Kane, even in the early games, was that he didn't seem to really change games. He seemed to be there when the team needed a finish. But we've seen it now against Darmstadt where he got the opener and then he assisted the second. We saw it against Galatasaray where he assisted and scored in the second half to give us the win. He is changing games now and that's what we needed from a 100 million euro signing. He is, I wouldn't say he's worth the money because 100 million euros is a ridiculous amount of money. But for the kind of investment, the kind of statement that we've made with signing him, he is paying it off right now. I think I agree. And I also think, like you mentioned, uh, $100 million is just way too much to justify. So we will see in the coming months if he indeed is worth that. Because the Champions League, especially in the latter stages, will really test this team. Especially the defense, but also the attack. Because Bayern's attack has created so many chances in the past editions, but has come short in finishing them. So if Harry Kane is going to make that difference, it is obviously going to put Bayern among the favourites. And I think they are currently one of the strongest favourites if Tuchel doesn't mess up the tactics or do something that backfires on the team. So yeah, very positive on the attack, but then I think that's also a very neat way to segue into... Tuchel's tactics and his role as a team in recent weeks. I am going to write an article very soon on what I think about Tuchel overall as a coach and how he fits Bayern's philosophy and what he's doing exactly and whether his results speak in favor of him or against him. Not in terms of just the scorelines at the end of the game, but also the way Bayern plays. But I think he's kind of an enigma because Bayern keeps stumbling into these very dominant wins, but it starts out very, very like badly, very poorly. And it almost feels like the defense at some points is holding on for dear life. And then at some stages, uh, some flashes of individual brilliance later, Bayern is dominating like the best team in the world. So it's very confusing to form a, you know, a complete assessment of the team under Tuchel. And I can't really pinpoint what tactic he's using. There's no specific game plan that is consistent in all the games. It's just all over the place. So maybe you can shed some more light on that. It's interesting to watch Tuchel's games because, yeah, as you mentioned, there is always that air of inconsistency and that 
there just doesn't seem to be anything really going on in the first half. It seems like the team are just bracing. And then in the second half, they come out all guns blazing. And it's just, it's the most paradoxical way to set up a game. I would say we've gotten lucky so far because we've had teams like Galatasaray get 20 shots in a single half. And they could definitely have scored more than they actually did. There will come a time where we are punished for this approach because at the moment we are just, you know, we're playing group stage games. Bayern Munich win these in their sleep. We haven't lost a group stage game since Donald Trump was sworn in as the president of the United States. That is how long we have gone without losing one of these. And uh-huh. even that yeah, was under that Ancelotti. <laughs> now that you put that into perspective like it, that, that is a very long time. Yes. Yeah. It's been six years, lads. The last time we lost a game in the Champions League, I was four foot six. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, or maybe yeah. It it, it seems like uh, just one of those things that has happened so long that you can't even maybe like pinpoint accurately, you know, what what was going on at the time before Bayern actually lost a group stage game. I don't remember when was the last time Bayern lost a group stage game. PSG 3-1, Park de Prank. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was 3-0, I believe, right? And the comeback game was a 3-1 for Bayern, right? Uh, yes, it was. I think there was a very yeah. early Dani Alves goal. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's okay. It's, 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 it's uh, I mean, PSG, it's like they're, they're, they're demons that have been burned already. We have punished them enough in the past to make up for any sort of pain they've inflicted on us. So... I guess that's more than even, but also it is so long back. That was when Corentin Tolisho was at Bayern and balling, and it's been a while since he left. So, you know, crazy times indeed. It's it's uh, it's It's been a good ride so far, but unfortunately, uh, group stage games are only group stage games, so this has to translate to victories in the knockout stages as well, hopefully. Yeah, and that's where I think Bayern will be tested because this approach cannot work in a knockout game. We can't just give up a half and try to make a nil-nil and then try and go out in the second half. That's not going to happen. If we face a team like Manchester City or even RB Leipzig in the quarterfinals or something, we will get punished. Those are not teams that skimp on their chances. These are teams that take their chances with full effect every time they're on the pitch. We cannot have this complacent approach of, oh, we'll take the second 45 and we'll let them have the first 45. That cannot work. Yeah, and uh, I think, so my assessment, I think I have an analysis actually. I think I kind of understand what's going on, but I'm not entirely sure. I think Tuchel starts off every single game with sort of a rough game game plan and he tries setting up a team in some way but for some reason it doesn't seem to work it seems like the opposition always either pressurizes the back line if they have enough quality to test by which you've seen in pretty much every single game you've faced half decent opposition including um leverkusen i guess uh copenhagen RB Leipzig and a bunch of other teams. And Bayern have struggled so much against that counter-press against just any team with half half an acre of intensity, you know, just just very, very difficult in those stretches. And then I believe Tuchel is quite shrewd at making changes mid-game. I think his substitutions overall have been quite impactful, but also he tries to change the game plan to adapt to the opposition at halftime. I think he tries to set up the team to exploit weaknesses. But I'm not entirely, again, sure if this is what is leading to Bayern's success in the second half. But I think he's more of a reactionary coach than a coach that prepares, you know, for a specific game plan or for a specific team, like we've seen under Nagelsmann or Flick. Flick, I wouldn't say... uh, I mean, Flick followed the same approach the entire time. It was just press till you die. And with Nagelsmann, it was more of a smart press, very sustained, uh, very, very, uh, I believe, energy-saving type press, which was also tailored to dealing with every opponent separately. But with Tuchel, it's just, I think he's more of a reactionary coach. And that is probably why we're seeing, you know, a lot of different changes a lot of interesting things happen in the second half as the game progresses. But uh, again, I would like to hear what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I think it's an approach that can backfire very quickly because if Bayern have a bad half, it's going to be a very bad half. We will concede multiple goals within that half and the mentalities could shatter. So it's a it's a very fragile approach. It could fall very quickly. But I think the way Nagelsmann set up teams to go against uh, tactics from minute one is a lot better and a lot more sustainable. But I think that Tuchel is mostly trying to manage the risk of what if a team sets up differently. I don't think that's a risk I would take, but Tuchel is taking it and it is working so far with a bit of luck, with the rub of the green. It may not sustain itself. We saw against Galatasaray where in the second half we targeted the wings a lot more and it worked. Uh, it was a lot less effective on the left where Zane was up against Sasha Bowie, but uh, on the right, it worked a lot. We saw some more movements in attack with Musiala dropping into half spaces a lot to create those overloads. That's the kind of tactics that Tuchel definitely adapted into the game. We can see those changes happening in real time where Musiala went from being a very central player to suddenly moving to the sides and Kane was dropping into the middle because the centre-backs weren't coming out. These are the kinds of reactionary changes that we don't see from someone like Nagelsmann. We... We'll see more of these as the season progresses. I'm excited to see what he does against Dortmund. I'm hoping for a lot more wing play because Dortmund are pretty weak out wide right now. But we will have to see if this adaptate uh, if this adaptative approach can continue to bear fruit. Yeah, actually, this might sound weird, but I have been one of the harshest critics of Tuchel in the past, I guess, three, four months. Actually, even longer than that. Last season, I hated his gameplay and how... Um, he got everything wrong against Manchester City, how he benched Thomas Miller, how he had a disastrous two legs. And then, you know, he had this propensity to just let players, you know, take the hit or let them get the brunt of all the criticism and just shift the blame, which I did not like at all. But I kind of, I kind of also think that some teams uh in, in some runs they they don't look like the best team they definitely don't show the the most class or they don't look the most dominant team out there but they somehow have this propensity to just win games and we've seen real madrid do that so many times when they have been the lesser team in games but they just win they just somehow manage to eke out the wins and we also saw that against you know Quite so, quite quite a, quite a few teams in the past that we have faced, like Villarreal, that we should have won on paper, but that we got beaten against. And a similar pattern was also observed, I think, uh, with Tuchel's Chelsea. He just beat everyone that you know people thought Chelsea couldn't beat in that Champions League winning run, including Manchester City in the final. Nobody expected Chelsea to win. I think they were very, very, very uh, highly. I guess, betted against and Manchester City was the overwhelming favourite. And then we saw what Chelsea managed to do. It's just, I think he can stumble onto wins. And it may or may not be a coincidence, but I cannot quite also blame him or criticise him more than a certain extent simply because he is getting the results. And right now, it might seem like luck, but also Bayern are kind of scoring quite a lot of goals. Uh, conceding fewer, especially now that Neuer is back. Hopefully that should improve even more and things are looking up. So I don't really have a bone to pick with Tuchel at the moment. And I know that it feels kind of deflating in a way for me because I don't like the coach, honestly. And I didn't like how the management sacked Nagelsmann. But I think I might warm up to him in the coming weeks, honestly. And I'm open to that because as long as Bayern wins, I'm happy. If Tuchel can deliver as a Champions League, he is my hero. You have to agree with you on not liking Tuchel. I've also been a very vocal critic of Thomas Tuchel from the second he was hired almost. Probably because of my biases towards uh, Nagelsmann and the way that he plays. But for me, I think Bayern Munich is more than just about the results. There's always been a mentality about winning games, not only on the pitch, but also tactically and in possession and just being the better team in general and playing good football more than anything. So I do think this kind of uh, philosophy of winning games and not just uh, you know dominating games. It doesn't fit with the Bayern philosophy. 
But if it's getting results, I can't complain too much. And I've gotten that a lot. I've had people disagree with me massively on Tuchel because Tuchel is getting results right now. He is getting results. Bayern Munich have not lost a game since April, I think. And that, that does say something. But I, I there's just something that just doesn't click for me with the fact that we're not dominating games. But I have to agree with you. If Tuchel delivers us a Champions League, all is forgiven. Absolutely. Including last season's disastrous collapse when Bayern were en route to win every single competition and then just barely eked out the Bundesliga. So that was quite disappointing. But if he can do anything to make up for that, it is by delivering a treble this season. And I know that's a lot of high hopes. I know that the Pokal has always been uh, quite the matter of contention for Bayern, especially given uh, their you know, propensity to... Uh, overestimate themselves or underestimate the opposition and then totally collapse when even the smallest amount of pressure is applied. But right now, things are starting to really click. And I think aside from the midfield, I don't really have a problem with the rest of the squad. And now I'm really happy because Manuel Neuer is back. And, you know, what do you have to say about that performance against Darmstadt? I think he looked as good as ever. He still looks sharp. He's, he looks so sharp. This is the third time he's come across an injury that would have ended most careers or uh, an injury or illness that would have ended most careers. And he's bounced back from it and he looks as sharp as ever. And I could not be more happy for him. I would say there were a couple moments where he maybe would have caught a ball and it kind of just slipped out, but that'll come with time. His saving was still sharp. There was that really good chance that Armstrong had in the first half where he saved it off his thigh. That was vintage Manuel Neuer. Getting low, getting the legs wide, making sure he closes the gap. That took me back to 2016, 2017 when he was at his best. I agree. And it was very similar to the double save he made against Neymar in the Champions League against PSG. He spread his, you know, legs apart uh, the same way. Oops. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, children. And uh, he tried to sound bite. <laughs> he tried to block the ball, and uh, you know he he managed to do that fantastically. So I think uh, it, it reminded me of that double save against Neymar, and the one where he again dived to the right to save the second shot it was absolutely incredible. And again against Darmstadt, he also was very vocal with the defense, which was sorely missed. Ulreich doesn't scream at defenders. He is not very vocal. Doesn't organize the defense. Neuer does that excellently. And he is the 11th outfield player, as we have seen. He is so good at ball distribution and everything else he does. So calm and composed. We need that presence and we have missed that so much. And I think it's a shame because I wanted to see more of Daniel Peretz as well instead of Ulreich because he looked so promising. But then I don't know why he was, uh, you know, benched in recent weeks. It's just a shame. But overall, I would say Neuer's return, undisputed number one for Bayern right now. And I hope he continues starting, you know, because the sky's the limit and we look really strong right now. Yeah, and I have to say that Neuer's presence almost seems to cover up for the lack of a number six. We saw this at times. Neuer, when he gets the ball, he looks forward. There are many times where Ulreich would get on the ball and he'd see a centre-back go wide and he'd pass it to them without really thinking. But Neuer takes his time on the ball. He lets a presser come forward and then he plays it or he plays it long and Kane gets on the end of it or Coman gets on the end of it. That happens a lot more often with him on the pitch because his distribution, as you mentioned, is so good. It might still be the best in the world amongst goalkeepers because he is just so calm and collected on the ball. And... This will help us because once pressers come onto Neuer, it opens up space for the midfielders and we won't really need a proper number six for distribution. Kimmich and Leimer can cover for that or Kimmich and Goretzka hopefully will cover for that. But I do still think we need number six, but Neuer is covering very well for him. That's, uh, yeah, I agree with everything you just said. And I guess it's time now for mandatory uh, advertisement break probably need an ad or two maybe chuck's doing them they, they need to mint the money so you probably need to call it a game right now come back after a few minutes and continue the podcast because i guess ad revenue is something that keeps this afloat and hopefully chuck distributes it to all of us and doesn't take all of it for himself 
So I'll be seeing you in a few. Yes. Um, let's take a short break and be back. Hello, everyone, and welcome back after that break. Um, I guess because the DFP Pokal is also around the corner, we could preview Bayern Munich's Pokal game against Saarbrücken. And this team is from the third Liga, the Dritte Liga in the Bundesliga. And uh, they are currently in 15th position and are playing at this point during recording a game against Dinamo Dresden, who are number one in the Dritte Liga. And they're currently drawn 0-0 at halftime. And to be very frank, I do not know a lot about this club. I actually don't know anything about the players. And uh, I probably would just say that Bayern Munich should field a very strong lineup, not underestimate the opposition, and it should be fairly straightforward. I don't think uh, this team should cause Tuchel too much of panic or any nightmares, but at the same time, we know from past encounters that if you underestimate opposition in the DFB Pokal, you get punished ruthlessly for it. So it's a do-or-die game. You have to win to qualify, so Bayern don't have a choice. They have to win this. And uh, Ryan, if you have anything to add to that, feel free to, because I don't really have anything else to say about that fixture. Yeah, it might be surprising considering my reputation, but no, I don't know anything about a third division German side. <laughs> the only but, third division... Um, they've, yeah. They've, they've got a couple ringers. Kai Bonka in particular, I've heard some things about him being an aerial threat, but I don't really know much about the team outside of Tim Schreiber because he's had some games for the German under-20s, and uh -huh. that's about it. He's been pretty good from what I've seen. He's got a pretty good frame. He's, he was at RB Leipzig a couple of years ago. I don't know what ha transpired for him to be in the third division now, but he's been pretty good. Uh-huh. I actually don't know much about third division teams outside of Dinamo Tristan. Um, I guess Arminia Bielefeld, because they were, you know, in the first division just a few years ago. And maybe a couple of other clubs like Essen and Victoria Köln, if you remember, Bayern faced them in the past. But uh other otherwise it's uh yeah pretty much barren land for me and it's um I, I don't think I can contribute a lot more. So I'm just going to stick to Bayern should win this comfortably if things go right and if Tuchel, you know, sticks to the best mix of players he can field on the pitch and does not do anything funny, like maybe a back five or introducing someone else in midfield, some other player who does not belong in midfield or just switching things up, maybe not playing Sane or Muziala or both, which would be really stupid in my opinion. But otherwise, this should be fairly straightforward. And uh, yeah, you want to say something? <laughs> I I do think that we should rest Leroy Sane as much as it pains me to say, because we have two very important fixtures after that, and I wouldn't want him to not be at peak fitness for those two. I think I would like to see him play at least the first half and as as long as we have a pretty decent goal cushion like maybe one or two goals minimum we can probably give him a rest for the second half because i don't want to risk a pokal game where it's do or die because in the bundesliga even if we lose to borussia dortmund in the upcoming game i'm sure we can make it up by beating other teams you know in the, in the second half of the season but Pokal, we have underestimated opposition all the times in the past, and that has led to us being knocked out. And this, we haven't won it in a while, and it would be nice to actually go into a competition with, you know, the firm belief that we could actually win it this season. So it is one trophy, one cup that has left me traumatized, and I just am not ready for more disappointing losses, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I do get what you mean. We haven't actually won the Pokal a lot in the last couple of years. I think it was just Hansi Flick and Niko Kovac who were brought at home of exactly. our last six or seven managers. I mean, I understand your argument for not uh, starting Zane this game, but I think he is the kind of player who would put the game to bed really quickly. 
if he can impose his quality over the defence, I think we might be in for three or four goals in the first half. And then he gets rested for the second half because there's no need to play the man for a full 90 minutes if you already are leading so dominantly. And then we can bring in all of the youngsters that we wanted to play if Tuchel wants that. So that would be pretty cool to see, I think. Like Frank Kretzisch and uh, Pavlovich and a few of the other youngsters. But uh, I believe that is a fair assessment and a fairly good preview of the game. I would like to end the podcast with maybe an overlook at, you know, of the, of the entire Bundesliga as a whole and the standings of the teams and which teams you think are the ones to watch in terms of the competition for Bayern Munich this season. Well, we've had a slight issue as of late, which is that Fairfish Stuttgart have lost Sehu Girassi for, I think, a couple more weeks. And without that magic, I think could drop down the table. I do. I think that his individual brilliance was really carrying that team a lot. They've got a couple of very good players. Obviously, they've got Anton Stark. They've got Valdemar Anton, who's been playing pretty well. Alexander Nubel has been surprisingly good. You know, he's faced an onslaught of shots and he's been keeping most of them out. They've got players like uh, Atakor Karazor, Ankelo Stieler, who obviously we're familiar with, a Bayern Academy graduate. These are Absolutely, players who yes. do well, but the team does not function without Girassi. That much is clear. So they could drop down the table a few places. However, I would still look to RB Leipzig and Bayer Leverkusen as Bayern's biggest rivals. RB Leipzig currently trail with three points and Leverkusen trail with a single point, but they have a game in hand. And they have been just so good. And they're showing the depth of a team that wants to go far in every competition right now. They played a game against Karabag in the Europa League this Thursday. And Lukas Rodetsky wasn't playing. Jonathan Ta wasn't playing. Ezequiel Palacios wasn't playing. Jonas Hoffman wasn't playing. And they still scored five goals. That is that insanity. Is yeah, yeah. I think they are the it team is... to watch the season. Yeah. I think I would say they are on paper the best team in Germany right now in terms of dominating games and winning games while being the better team. I think I have to agree with you on that. And I think they looked quite amazing against Bayern this season as well. And it is a shame that they are not in the Champions League because I believe they could have rinsed their group stage regardless of which teams they had. It is a, it is a shame. But it's nice that they have a fairly decent shot of winning the Europa League. But then again, that's what happens with German teams, right? You hope for them to win and then you see a really good run of form, but it doesn't translate to actual victories. And then they might lose to, you know, a club like Lenz in the Europa League or something stupid like that. So it's it's so unpredictable. And the, the, the form in the league does not translate to the form outside the league, unfortunately. But if this could be their year, I would love to see them win the Europa League because it has been a while since the German team has done that. I think the last team uh, to do that was Eintracht Frankfurt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, only been two years, so. Oh, okay. No, not that bad. Not that bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. I'm just desperate for years. more European Cup wins <laughs> for the Bundesliga. Yeah. Even it was actually only last year, I think. Oh, I think it, it was, was actually yeah. just last year. That's right. Because the right, year before right. that was Villarreal with penalties in the final. Exactly. Game exactly. Yes. Yeah. And then Sevilla against Man United as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think. I think Leverkusen poses a threat, not only because they're such a well-oiled machine, but because even when the machine doesn't work, they've got the individuals. They've got players like Jeremy Frimpong. They've got players like Jonas Hoffman, Victor Boniface. Ezequiel Palacios is playing very well right now. And I have to highlight who, for me, is the key to Leverkusen right now, who I think is the best left-back in the world, Alejandro Grimerdo. He has been imperious for Leverkusen know, in I Europe, yes. in Germany, everywhere. They've, he's so have, good. Who have read, he is. He's so good. People who have read my Power Ranking articles have heard me you know, go on about him for paragraphs and paragraphs at this point. But he <laughs> changes games. Uh-huh. He has this combination of Nusair Mazraoui's smart decision-making on the ball where he can get the ball into safer areas while being pressed. But he combines it with the attacking flair that we see in someone like Alfonso Davies. And it's not just the fact that he's faster than the other guy. He's better on the ball. He's better from dead balls. He's better at creation exactly. than whoever I his think... opponent is. 
I think that is one area that uh, he po- he he poses this threat that is almost unstoppable at times. You know, his dead ball situation masterpieces and also his threat from long range. You cannot contain him because if you try to commit to defending him, he could always send in a belter from long range. And he has that very powerful shot. It just curls inside. And we've seen him also strike a couple of, you know, bangers, uh, some some really good uh, free kicks. So I would say he's a very well-rounded fullback and he could quite well be currently on form the best fullback in the league. Obviously, we have Davies, Frimpong, a bunch of other players who have a decent shout. But uh, like you mentioned, Grimaldo's fantastic. And I also think a large reason why Leverkusen is so successful is because of how well they're suited to Xavi Ball. It seems like it was always what they were meant to be doing. All the players seem to fit in the system so beautifully and it is getting the best out of every single player. And the combination of the players seems to be better than the sum of their individual parts, which is what is so fascinating about the system. So... Hoping for great things, hoping for a really nice title challenge from Leverkusen, but obviously it would also be very nice to see them win in European competition. That was uh, that was good. I guess uh, it is sad that we can't really say the same about Borussia Dortmund because they are good, but I know that they will bottle it. As you know, as much as I hate to say that, it's just something I, I just cannot trust them to be consistent. I simply cannot. I don't see them yeah. as as posing a threat, especially in the second half of the season. I think they will mess up at some stage. They will lose points. They will lose to the most strangest opposition. They might lose to Heidenheim and Darmstadt. You know, it's just I don't trust them at all. But uh, it would be nice to have a title challenge, a genuine one, where you have all three, four teams below Bayern pushing for that title, because. The competition in the Bundesliga pushes Bayern to become better. And we have seen, you know, in some of the seasons in the past that, uh, including that very glorious 2012-13 treble-winning season where Dortmund was absolutely obliterating teams as well and they were in the Champions League final, which was so cool. And I want something of that sort to happen again. You know, maybe teams performing really well in Europe, but also in the Bundesliga, which would be really good for the league as well, because if there's one thing the Bundesliga could use more, it is marketing. This league needs more people watching it because it is so entertaining. Yeah, it would definitely do well for the league, but I have to agree that Dortmund will definitely falter at some time. And you mentioned Heidenheim, which is a very funny choice because that was that would have been the exact choice I would have gone with. A 1-0 loss to Heidenheim with yeah Niklas Bester getting a goal. That exactly. would <laughs> we can we can write that down and come back to that later. But that would be very funny Dortmund, if that actually happens. Yeah. Yeah. Dortmund are in a very strange state right now where defensively it all seems to have come together, but there is no real midfield or attacking system at all. They've just got Daniel Marlin who's doing things and then occasionally someone like Felix and Mecha, who came up big against Newcastle, will do something. But there's just there's some there's something fundamentally missing from Edin Terzic's Dortmund that just does not seem like they can be trusted to win games. I completely agree. It's uh, that ruthlessness that they just miss. You know, it just it just pains me to see this, but uh, it is how it is. But on a bright note, I suppose things are looking up for Bayern. Hopefully, we continue this brilliant run of form. And it would be nice to pose a really serious threat in every single competition this season. And if under Tuchel, we manage to win a treble, you know, let's get the party started. Because Mann has already won a Champions League. If he wins another one, he could well be one of the best coaches in history, as much as it pains me to say it. Thank you so much, and... Ryan. For... Yeah, okay. Before we go, let's not let's not yes. forget. Let's not forget. Tuchel nearly did win a second Champions League already. That is he very was true. the guy who took yeah. a very disgruntled locker room from PSG with them into shape and got them to that Champions League final. They very nearly won. It was closer than I would like to admit. I think I think he he was like, if you cannot beat them, you join them. And that's why he came to Bayern. <laughs> 
very interesting and very nice that he joined us. And uh, I hope that we have the same luck that he enjoyed during that run with Chelsea. You know, if if Pep overthinks and benches Holland, it would be amazing. Like I would enjoy that so much if Bayern faced City. But knowing knowing Pep's propensity to learn from his mistakes. I don't think that's likely, but it would be nice to see Haaland not playing the game. I, but, can, yeah. I can see a decision like that. Something like <laughs> Jeremy Doku playing on the left because he would do better than against Mazrawi and Mazrawi just comes out of nowhere and changes the entire game. Yeah, that would be really nice. That would be really nice. I, I hope he overthinks this season because that is the only thing I feel like can stop City from winning the Champions League again. Just have the the most, I guess, star-studded, the deepest squad in the competition. But again, we have Harry Kane, so you know who's to say that we cannot do it equally, equally good. And I would say Holland is not half the complete striker that Harry Kane is, despite his underrated playmaking ability. I think Holland uh, does not, at the, at at this moment in time, hold a candle to how complete Kane is as a player. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Yes. And, uh, yeah, with that, I think uh, unless you have something else to say to, you know, round up the pod, I can I can, I can, can presume you've covered all bases and we can end the pod here. Thank you so much for joining me, Ryan. It was a pleasure to podcast with you. And uh, thank you so much, guys, for listening. Feel free to like, share, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on any and all podcasting platforms that you use. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Megaphone, I don't know, there must be like tens of thousands out there. Just any, just get the feedback coming. Just uh, show us the love that you've always shown, the support. We love listening to your comment, uh, listening to your feedback, reading your comments, and the interactions we have on BFW, where we have some really great articles coming up to get your brains tinkering. Thanks for joining us once again. And until next time, feeling down, good. Auf Wiedersehen.